0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I say this often, but if you, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, it's our privilege to provide you with one. Just see somebody at the doors that, that was greeting you and just say, hey, I'd love to have a Bible and we will, we will get one for you. We're going to be picking up our study this morning in verse 33. And uh, Lord willing, we are going to make it through chapter 5 today. Uh, I told someone recently that uh, this week that I had planned to do chapter 5 in two weeks Uh, It has taken us five. So, um, but it's so good. I mean, there's like just such good stuff here that I I just we had to slow down and and take a closer look. And as we've been making our way through these first five chapters, though, we've seen how Jesus's popularity has continued to rise. You know, wherever he went, right, crowds of people were were gathering around Jesus. Right? They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to see the miracles that he was performing. You know, lives were being changed by Jesus. He was healing people physically. We, we've, we've seen paralytics healed. We've seen lepers cleansed. We've seen him heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We've seen him free people who are demon-possessed. He's forgiving sins, which is the ultimate healing that anyone can receive, right? He was preaching the good news of God's kingdom. It said he went all throughout the region preaching in their synagogues, teaching the good news of God's kingdom. He was inviting people to come and follow him, inviting people to be his disciples who nobody else would have chosen. Fishermen, last week we saw him inviting tax collectors. Jesus was changing lives. But at the same time that Jesus' popularity was was growing amongst the people, there was also a rising level of, of hostility and resistance from a particular group of people who were known as the Pharisees. These were the, these were the super religious leaders of the day who they had developed a long and complicated set of rules for how to live a godly life. The problem was that, that these rules, they were man-made. And They did not reflect the heart of God. And so a couple of weeks ago, the first conflict that we read about between Jesus and the Pharisees happened when the Pharisees heard Jesus, he was claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. And that's something that only God can do, right? They're actually correct about that. They said only God can forgive sins, so they accused him of blasphemy, Problem was, he is God, he's God in the flesh and he does have the authority to forgive sins and he demonstrated it for them at that moment by then not only forgiving the man for his sins but then raising the man who was paralyzed and sending him out of the home walking that day. A demonstration of his power and authority not only to heal people physically but to heal people spiritually. Then the second conflict that we looked at last week happened when when Jesus invited a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And then after inviting this Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, to come and be his disciple, Matthew threw a big party and Jesus was the guest of honor in Matthew's house. And there's Jesus at the party surrounded by other tax collectors and known sinners in the community. Jesus is right there in the center and they're eating and they're drinking and they're having a great time and the Pharisees are they they are fired up they are angry that that somebody who's claiming to be the Messiah somebody who claims to be a godly man is hanging out with some of the most vile sinners that were known but Jesus said these are the exact type of people that I've come to save I didn't come for healthy people I came for sick people I'm a physician a spiritual physician who's come to set people free from their sins. And so over the past two weeks, what what we're starting to see here is this rising tension between Jesus and, and the way that he does ministry and the Pharisees and their religious practices. Two very different ways of approaching God and living for him. On the one hand, you've got this super religious, you know, group of Pharisees, some of the most, listen, they were some of the most somber, serious, and just plain gloomy people that you could meet, intentionally. They intentionally carried themselves around like, life is hard, it's so terrible, just living for God, you know? They, they, it, because the, in their minds, the more miserable you were, the more godly you were. They were denying themselves and th- making themselves miserable out of their devotion to God. And, and but then you had Jesus, right? And wherever Jesus went, his life and ministry were characterized by joy and freedom. While the Pharisees were busy you know, puffing themselves up and looking down on others, Jesus was busy serving, loving, teaching, healing, and spending time with those who needed to be set free. When we read the gospels, what we see is Jesus setting people free from their sins and setting them free to live for God. And that brings joy. That's what leads us to say, then sings my soul. Right, it's the natural response to someone who's experienced the love and the freedom that comes from Jesus. Well, as we pick up our study this morning, in verse 33, once again, Jesus is going to be questioned and challenged about his ministry and his methods. Actually, we've already done two weeks of this. We're going to do it this week, and then guess what? Next week, it's more of the same. So, let's begin reading in Luke chapter five, verse 33. Luke 5.33 says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, before we talk about what they said, first we need to talk about who the they are. And you're like, well, it's the Pharisees, right? Well, if, if all we had was Luke's gospel, that's exactly what you would assume because we, where we left off last week, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and then it says, and they asked this question, or they, they brought this concern. But if we read the parallel accounts of this story in both Matthew and Mark, we find out that it wasn't just the Pharisees who were, who were asking this question. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, we read that then the disciples of John, John the Baptist. This is the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Messiah who's saying, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah that you've been waiting for. His disciples are now coming to Jesus. They came to him and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In Mark chapter 2, verse 18, it says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people... Other translations, if you have them, might say, and they, they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So who are the they that are asking these questions? Is it John's disciples? Is it the Pharisees? Is it the people? I think the most logical answer is yes. Yes, it, it's all of them. It's all of them, right? As John's disciples, as the Pharisees, and as the people are observing Jesus and his disciples, watching how he's doing ministry in the community, they could not help but notice that there was some obvious differences between them. It was, it was, start, it was startling. He is so different than any other religious leader that had ever come along. The joy that surrounds him and his guys compared to these guys, right, it, it, was, it was startling. Now, I need to point something out because John's disciples and the Pharisees are asking the same question. They're both asking the same question, but that doesn't mean that they had the same motive. It doesn't mean that they had the same motive. For John's disciples, they're, they're probably confused, right? They're thinking, well, John is telling us that you're the Messiah, but you don't behave like we do. You're doing something totally different. Are we doing it wrong? What, what's the, they're confused. They don't understand. But the Pharisees, well, the question that they were been asking would have been far more accusatory, right? Why aren't you doing what we do. We're the ones that are doing it right. You're doing it wrong. The, John's disciples are asking a question because they're confused. The Pharisees' disciples are asking a question because they're accusing Jesus of doing things the wrong way. So let's go ahead and take a look at their question. As they're observing Jesus, it's obvious that he and his disciples are doing things very differently. And one of the more glaring differences was the practice of fasting, they said, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours do what? Eat and drink. In other words, they say, while we're busy fasting, you guys are feasting. <laughs> while we're busy depriving ourselves, right? You guys are having a party. What is up with that? Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you doing the things that godly people do. Now, to better understand their question, to better under, but isn't it funny, though, honestly? This should be a little bit comical that Jesus is, is in trouble for having too much fun, right? Stop being so joyful, right? Listen, there are still many in the religious communities around the world that are, have the same sort of uh, reputation, right? Somber, serious, and just plain gloomy, you know? That's not the way that Jesus was, but that's what he's being accused of here. Now, again, to, to better understand, we need to talk a little bit more about fasting. This, this practice of abstaining from food for a period of time, well, that would make me gloomy, okay? I, don't, I love food, right? So when I get hungry, I get... There's a reason why we have something called hangry, right? That it's, it's, a real, it's a real thing, but fasting is a spiritual discipline that was uh, practiced by many people in the Bible, including Jesus, Jesus fasted, Paul, King David, Daniel, Moses, Elijah, Esther, Ezra, and plenty of others. Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat also called for a fast. And, and fasting is meant to be a way of denying our flesh for a period of time, saying no to like, hey, I'm desiring food, but I'm gonna say no to myself, in order to focus our attention on God. It's a practice that is intended to increase both our awareness of God and our dependence upon God. And as you read through the scriptures, we, we often see fasting connected with prayer, Right? You always see that, those two kind of going together prayer and fasting. So, through prayer and fasting, we see God's people seeking God's will and His direction. But we also see, particularly in the Old Testament, that, that on many occasions, the, the people were choosing to fast because of times of grief, during times of repentance. And in times when they were just crying out to God, pleading with him for his protection and his deliverance. And there's all kinds of examples of that. Again, Esther is, is a great example of that. Ezra, when they were returning from Babylon. Uh, Jehoshaphat, when they were being surrounded uh, and they're praying for protection. But in addition to all of these you know, voluntary fasts that we read about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, for the Jewish people, there was also one day every year where Jews were required to fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. This is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. This is the one day every year when the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies to bring a sacrifice for his sins, for the sins of his family, and for the sins of the people. And in Leviticus chapter 16, God gave the Israelites very specific instructions on how they were going to observe this holy, holy day. And one of the commands for the day for, for, for Yom Kippur was that everyone was required to, what it says in Leviticus 16, is to afflict themselves, which was understood to be a time of fasting, intentionally afflicting yourself by withholding food in order to to focus on God, to examine their lives, and to grieve over their sins. That's what Yom Kippur was all about. And so in the Jewish mindset, so in the Jewish mindset, the practice of fasting became deeply, deeply connected to repentance, grief, and mourning. It was associated with those, with those feelings. But sadly, the practice of fasting also became associated with, a, with, with an outward display uh, or a demonstration for others of just how spiritual or how holy you were. It, 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 the more you fasted, obviously, the more holy you were. And so what would happen is people went out of their way to make sure that other people knew that they were Fasting, right? That's what it became. Everybody look at me. I'm fasting, right? What are you doing today? You wanna to come out to dinner? No, I can't. I'm fasting, depriving my, I'm afflicting myself, <laughs> just like all the other holy people from scriptures, right? Drawing attention, to themselves. And so for the, for the super religious types like the Pharisees, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to fast one time per year on Yom Kippur. It wasn't enough to just make fasting a regular you know, part of their lives when they were feeling led to, to seek God more. No, they made it a regular, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, a regular ritual in their lives. Something they did. They're just going through the motions. This is what we do. We fast. It's part of being a godly person. In fact, by the time of Jesus, by the time Jesus comes along, the Pharisees had decided that, 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 again, it wasn't enough to just do it once a year, right? The Pharisees at the time of Jesus made it their regular practice to fast two days every week. Every week, every Monday and every Thursday. You wouldn't do it on Tuesday. It has to be Monday. Every Monday and every Thursday. I actually read somewhere uh, that, that it might've been on Monday and Thursday because those were the busiest days in the market. More people to see you (laughs) grieving as you're fasting. So every Monday and every Thursday, the Pharisees would would self-afflict themselves as a sign of their great devotion to God. Last Sunday, I don't know if you remember this, but we closed, we read um, a parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 18. Do you remember what the Pharisee said when he was praying in the temple? He said, "God, I thank you that I am not like other men." Such a good guy, you know? Other men like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I get. And I am so righteous that I deny myself of food two times every single week. In their minds, the more you deprived yourself, the more you afflicted yourself, the more miserable that you were, the more that God would be pleased with you. Author Kent Hughes says, therefore... When fa- this, I find this comical. Therefore, when fasting, the Pharisees tried to look as forlorn as possible. Some of them actually whitened their faces to affect an emaciated look. They refused to wash and they wore their clothes in shoddy disarray. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, right? We've talked about how they like had their clothes were perfect. They had their phylacteries and their everything. They're like tight in their robes when they went out like we are the holy people right? But on Monday and Thursday, they're like, oh, oh, and they can't even tuck in their robes because they're grieving and mourning so much. Oh, I'm just so weak, so tired, so hungry. You know, someone comes over and is like, I've got some extra food. You hungry? Oh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't possibly eat. I'm fasting. But don't worry about me. Don't worry about me it's all for God, it's all for him, right? All for him, yeah, right, right? Obviously not. It's no wonder that in Matthew chapter six, Jesus said these words, when you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their award, they've got their praise, from the people, that's their reward. But when you fast, and notice that Jesus isn't opposed to fasting here, right? Jesus, let's be clear about that. Jesus is not opposed to fasting. He assumes that we will fast here, doesn't he? He says, when you fast, not if you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus isn't opposed to fasting, is he? Obviously, I mean, he he fasted. But Jesus is opposed to man-made commandments that are imposed on others by self-righteous individuals and institutions who are claiming to speak for God. He's opposed to that. He's also opposed to inauthentic expressions of devotion to God that are motivated by a desire to bring glory to ourselves. He's opposed to that. And Jesus says, when you fast, do it for the right reasons. And I just wanna, hey, if fasting isn't something that's part of your spiritual disciplines and your practice, like you pray, you study God's word, pray about it, ask God if he might have you to consider fasting for a time and and look into that and study up on that. It is a spiritual discipline with, with great benefits for your walk with the Lord. So this is the backdrop though. This is the backdrop for the question. Why don't your disciples fast like we do? The Pharisees are afflicting themselves twice a week, walking around in mourning in an attempt to please God and seek his blessing. You know, While we're busy fasting, you guys are feasting. While we're depriving ourselves, you guys are eating and drinking, you're, you're celebrating. Why? Why? And Jesus says, that is such a good question. That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked, right? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus answers their objection, with a question. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus says, do do, do you fast during a wedding celebration? Is that what you do? And the implied answer is, no, of course not. Why? Because that would be rude, right? Can you imagine going to someone's wedding, right? And just sitting in the back all gloomy and sad and they're passing out food at the reception. You're like, don't put that in front of me. And fasting for Jesus. You know, like you would never do that. It's totally rude. Why? Because weddings are not a time for mourning. Weddings are a time for joyful celebration. In our culture, in our culture, weddings are, are typically a one-day event, right? You've got the wedding, you've got a reception, and then the bride and the groom, they're off to their honeymoon, right? That's that's how it goes. But in that culture, Weddings were typically a week-long celebration, a full week of of feasting and celebration with the bride and groom. It's kind of cool if you think about it, right? And during this week-long celebration, Kent Hughes says that the bride and the groom were attended by chosen friends known as the guests of the bridegroom. These wedding guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling, and we talked about all the teachings of the rabbis, right? The rabbinical rules. The Pharisees would have been really familiar with these rabbinical rules and they would have followed them closely. But through this rabbinical ruling that said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. They're saying, you can't be fasting during the week-long celebration if you're a tenant of the bridegroom because that would lessen your joy. And there is no room for mourning in the presence of the bride and the groom. Not allowed. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, listen, the groom is here. The groom is here. I am the groom. I am the long-awaited Messiah, and so this is not a time for fasting. This is a time for feasting. This is a time for celebration. In the same way that it would be inappropriate for the guests to be mourning during, or fasting during a wedding celebration, Jesus says it would be inappropriate for my disciples to be mourning and fasting while I am here with them. Totally inappropriate. Jesus says that this is a time for celebration because the Messiah is here. I love what what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, the disciples didn't need to fast in order to concentrate on God. They could reach out and touch him literally, right? They didn't need to, to devote time to prayer and fasting to seek the heart of God. They could look him right in the eyes and ask him, God, what do you want from me? What do I need to do? The Messiah was with them, God in the flesh. It was a time for joyous celebration, But in verse 35, Jesus says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus says, hey, right now, this is a time for celebration, but but a time is coming when my disciples will fast. They're going to mourn when I am taken away from them. Now, the word that Jesus uses here for taken implies to be taken away by force. It's a a forceful snatching away. Now, no doubt Jesus is speaking about the events that are going to eventually transpire in Jerusalem. In fact, this is the first time that Jesus sort of alludes to what he's going to face in Jerusalem. It it was covered in Luke chapter 2 when he was a baby, right, at the temple, and uh, Simeon talked about what was going to happen to Jesus eventually but this is the first time that Jesus alludes to it. He's gonna be arrested. He's gonna be beaten. He's gonna be crucified. He's gonna be buried in a tomb. Jesus is going to be taken away from them. And it's gonna be a time of intense mourning for his disciples. And honestly, I would not be, I would not be the least bit surprised, even if the scriptures don't say it, I would not be surprised if the disciples were literally fasting during those days between Jesus's crucifixion and his resurrection. I mean, the mourning must have been so intense for them that they probably had no desire to eat. Any of you have experienced deep loss, you know what that's like. The last thing you're thinking about is eating, right? When you've lost somebody that you love, it's hard to force yourself to eat sometimes, isn't it? No doubt, those had to be some of the darkest longest days and hours of the disciples' lives. But praise God, right? Their mourning was turned to joy, wasn't it? When Jesus defeated death and he rose victoriously from the grave, as intense as their mourning must have been, their celebration and joy after the resurrection must have surpassed it, right? And so Jesus answers this question, right? He answers their concern with a question of his own. He tells them that my disciples are not fasting because this is a time for celebration. The Messiah is with them. But he doesn't stop there. I mean, he could have. He could have said, there's your answer. Now get on with it. Go away. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus is now going to take this this teachable moment and he's going to now give them a, a parable. He's gonna use three illustrations, three analogies to make a really, really important point. So let's look at the first illustration, verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. Jesus is talking about clothing now, garments, how many of you have ever, um, how many of you have ever patched up a hole in a favorite pair of pants? Let's just see. Okay, that's actually, honestly, that's more than I expected. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a lot, but it was definitely more than I expected. If I had to guess, I won't, I won't take a poll on the ages of the people who raised their hands there, okay? <laughs> but if I had to guess, if I had to guess, especially for our, our younger generations in, in our culture, at least here in the United States... Patching holes in clothing is probably not something that is practiced as commonly as it used to be, right? And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. There's probably a lot of reasons. First of all, I mean, we're just not nearly as frugal as we used to be, right? You know, we're not, we're not worried about whether or not I'm going to be able to buy another pair of pants, right? So people, in fact, most things in our culture, sadly, are very disposable, right? We, we just, oh, oh it's, eh, it's got a scratch. Let's get a new one, you know? That's how we treat Things. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Today, at least one other reason is that you are more apt to buy a pair of jeans that already has holes in it than you are to patch a pair that has formed a hole. That still doesn't make sense to me. I know I'm old. I guess I'm too old to really get a hold of that. And what's really funny is if you do have a pair of pants that doesn't have a hole in it and it springs a hole in it, it's no good. But if you buy a pair that already has a hole in it, that is. I I don't get it, right? (laughs) But let's just say that you were trying to patch a hole in an old shirt, a, a favorite shirt, a favorite pair of pants. Jesus says you wouldn't cut a patch out of a brand new pair of pants in order to patch an older pair. You wouldn't say, oh, man, my favorite jeans have a hole in it. Let me just run down to the store and buy a new pair of jeans I'll come home, I'll cut out a hole out of those new jeans and sew it onto my favorite old ones. You wouldn't do that, right? How ridiculous would that be? You would not do that. Jesus would say, you just, just wear the new pair. <laughs> you just bought a new pair, just, just wear those. But besides that, besides that, there was the whole issue of, of shrinking. There's a the whole issue of shrinking. In fact, in both Matthew and Mark's gospel, they actually emphasize that point. In Mark chapter two, verse twenty-one, Jesus says, "No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made." See, in those days, before the whole like pre-shrunk clothing, right? I like pre-shrunk clothing, by the way. Yeah, it's so disappointing. You've ever bought a shirt you just loved it. You wear it once, and then the next time you go to put it on, it just doesn't fit the same. And it will never, ever fit the same again. That's really frustrating. But if you were to take a a new piece of cloth that had never been shrunk yet, and you were to stitch it onto an old garment that had already been washed, dried, and shrunk, you know what's gonna happen, right? You understand this. As soon as the new patch is washed, dried, it's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to make a hole in the original garment that's bigger than the hole to begin with, right? It's going to be worse than it was before, right? So that's his first illustration, right? That's the first one. Before we talk about what Jesus is saying here, let's look at his second similar illustration. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In his second illustration, Jesus appeals to what was apparently common knowledge. He says nobody puts new wine into an old wineskins. Why? Why? because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you put new wine in old wineskins, both of them end up ruined. Now, that may have been common knowledge in in Jesus' day, but you and I both know that someone had to learn that the hard way, right? (laughs) Someone was the first person who said, oh, hey, I got this old wineskin. Let's just put some new wine in it, and that'd be great. And then, right? Didn't work. It didn't work. And while I'm pretty sure that that this was common knowledge in that day, I, I am also pretty sure that most of us have never skinned an animal and sewed it into a wineskin. Has anybody here actually, I mean, I know some of you have skinned animals because we're in Maine, right? Um, so yeah, we got some hunters here. Um, but but I, I am curious, has anybody here ever taken the, the carcass of the animal that you shot, skinned it, and turned it into a wineskin? Anyone? Anybody? Okay, good. So let me just explain. What? Did somebody say yes? <laughs> just, let, me, let me just explain this for a moment. Okay, so wineskins were typically made from either sheep or goats. Look at that picture. That is not the picture you just had in your mind, is it? I, I know when I saw that picture, I was thinking, please pour me a glass. <laughs> right? I'm glad, I'm glad that we use things like bottles and cans and things like that today. That, that, Wow, there it is. All right, so they would take either sheep or goats, and they would keep the animals' hide in one piece, in one piece, and the neck would form the spout of these large wineskins. And what they would do is, is they would fill these new wineskins with fresh new wine, fresh new squeezed juice. At some point, I'm sure in our series, we're going to get into talking about how wine uh, was made and people pressing the grapes, very cool stuff. But anyway, squeezing it with their feet, great. Pour me a glass, right? (laughs) So after pressing it with their feet, they would then take the fresh juice, they'd pour it into that and, uh, and, and, and let it begin the process of fermentation, right? As the wine began to ferment, these gases would build inside of that wineskin. But because it was a fresh wineskin, there was still enough elasticity in that hide to stretch during the fermentation process. So it it could handle the fermentation. But if if you took an old wineskin that had already been stretched to its max, kind of old, kind of brittle, and you put brand new fresh juice in it, as soon as that fermentation started to to go, right, and the gases started to build, that old wineskin would crack and break. And what's the result? The wine is spilled out on the floor, and your old wineskin is no good anymore. I mean, you could put old wine in an old wineskin, but you could not put new wine in an old wineskin. Okay. So there you have it. Those are, those are two illustrations that Jesus has given them, two very similar illustrations. But what is Jesus saying? What is he saying? Jesus, Jesus wants the disciples of John, he wants the Pharisees to understand that, that the differences that they're noticing, right? The, the differences like fasting and how Jesus and his disciples feast while they're fasting Differences like the type of people that Jesus is associating with, right? These differences are just the beginning. They're just starting to scratch the surface. They they, they don't have any idea how bad it's going to get for them, right? This is just the beginning of something new, something new that God is doing. God the Father sent his son Jesus to bring something new, something better, something better. And Jesus wants these religious leaders to understand that he's not, I'm not here to fix or repair this old broken system that Judaism had become. I'm not here to fix it. I'm not here to patch it up. I'm not here to put patches on your worn out garment. And all of these man-made rules and and regulations, Jesus says, I am bringing something new, something new. Jesus is bringing good, good news. That's what the gospel is, right? Good news. The good news uh, of, of God's kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, the good news is that this kingdom is made available to everyone through faith in Jesus Christ, not just the Jews, but Gentiles also. The Pharisees couldn't handle that. They hated the Gentiles. They hated tax collectors who associated with Gentiles. They didn't like lepers. They were unclean, keep them away from us. Jesus says this new kingdom is available to everyone through faith in me. The good news is that that the old system, the the whole old system of, of animal sacrifices It was coming to an end. Why? Because the blood of Jesus was gonna be sacrificed on a cross, paying the price once and for all for the sins of mankind. There was no longer gonna be a need to sacrifice lambs and bulls anymore to cover sins. Jesus was gonna cover them once and for all. They couldn't handle that. The good news is that there was no longer gonna be a need for a high priest to go to the Holy of Holies once a year. Why? because Jesus is our high priest, right? And because of him, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter four that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We don't need a high priest to go before us anymore. We can go confidently to God because of Jesus. The good news is that that the laws of God that were once written on tablets of stone are now written on the hearts of God's children. This is good news. All of that stuff in the Old Testament, the law, the commandments, the sacrifices, they had their place. They had their place. And their place was to point to what God was gonna do in the future through his son, Jesus. That was the purpose for those things. And he's here. He's here. That's the point he's trying to make. Jesus is saying that this, this good news, this new garment isn't just something that you can cut pieces out of in order to patch up an old and worn out system. You're gonna ruin it. You're gonna ruin both if you try to do that. This good news, this new wine cannot be poured into their old dried up system. They won't be able to handle it. Instead, he's gonna pour this new wine into a brand new wineskin. You know what that wineskin is? His church. He's going to pour it into his followers, his disciples, the bride of Christ. Did you know that's what the church is? He is the groom and his church is the bride. He's going to pour this new wine into this church who are going to take this good news to the ends of the earth. That's what he's going to do. I need to make something really, really clear. Before we continue, in speaking of the old, in speaking of the old, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying that he was doing away with the Old Testament. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. He is fulfilling the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter five, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. I feel like I'm listening to my parents when I was a kid. Not one dot or one iota. (laughs) Like, people don't say that anymore. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is not doing away with the law. He is fulfilling it. The old covenant is coming to an end and the new covenant is being ushered in by Jesus. This is exciting. It should have been an incredibly exciting time for the religious leaders of that day. Why? Because this was prophesied in the Old Testament. If they had really been paying attention to what was written in the Old Testament, they would have seen this day coming. They wouldn't have known when it was coming, but all of a sudden when you've got a rabbi walking around doing all the things that Jesus is doing, saying the things that Jesus is saying, backing it up with healings and miracles, and you gotta pay attention, right? They loved, they loved their rules. They loved their old religion so much that they weren't even willing to consider that this might be the thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Couldn't be, why? Because that would mean we'd have to let go of the thing that we love. And please, come on, let's just admit it. Do people still do that today? I mean, it's been happening all through history. I was talking this morning with the, with the, with the worship team out back before the service, we were praying, and we were talking about the idea that, you know, when sometimes we talk about the Protestant Reformation, like, Like the Protestant Reformation was a patching up of the the Catholicism. It wasn't a patchwork. It was a separation. Had to start something new because you couldn't fix what it had become. You couldn't. So they had to start something new. This has been happening forever. And we are still tempted. We are still tempted today to cling to our forms instead of the function of those forms. Right? We worship the forms instead of what the forms are supposed to be taken to, and that's Jesus Christ. And and entire churches divide over these, these, these wars. And I don't need to list out all the different types of little battles and wars that you know, you know what types of wars I'm talking about. Everybody thinks they've got it figured out. And instead of focusing on Jesus, instead of focusing on the truth of his word, we get caught up and we worship our forms. Instead. It's sad. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to these words from the Old Testament. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant. With who? With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And what does he say next? It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It's not gonna be like the Mosaic covenant. It's going to be new because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on, the tab, on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I mean, the Pharisees knew this scripture. They just were unwilling to even consider that Jesus was ushering in this new covenant, right? Unwilling. They should have known, but they were so comfortable. They were so married to their old lifeless system that they had created all those rules and regulations. We're going to talk about this next week some more because we're going to start getting into their rules and their regulations around Sabbath. That's what what they're going to confront him on in our passage next week. They were so married to all these rules that they were unwilling to, to even consider this new thing that Jesus was bringing, which is why Jesus shares one more illustration. One more illustration, verse 39, and we'll close. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is good. Now, in my mind, and again, it doesn't say it, but in my mind, I picture Jesus looking directly at the Pharisees in this moment, looking right at him as he he gives this final illustration. Jesus is bringing this new and better wine. But as we're going to see through the rest of Luke's gospel, very few. Very few of the Pharisees and the religious leaders are going to be willing to even consider this new and better way. They're gonna reject the new wine. They're gonna reject it for one reason, simply because it's new. That's why they're gonna reject it. They're so content with their old system. The old is good. That's not how we've always done it. You've never heard that, have you? That's not how we do it around here, right? They've heard Jesus teach, right? They've seen his miracles. They've seen him cast out demons. They, they've heard his claims to be the Messiah, but but he wasn't doing things the old way. He wasn't doing things their way. And they're unwilling to even consider this new wine, this new and better way. Now, I know you've heard me say it before, but it is so easy I love to do it. It's easy to pick on the Pharisees, right? To focus on where they fell short. But what we really need to be doing is asking God to help us to stay sensitive to his spirit and to protect us from becoming so set in our ways that we miss out on the new things that he may wanna be doing in and through us. And even saying that, I know some of you are like, whoa, 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 what are you saying, Chris? Oh, is this where he's okay? This is the this is the segue where he's now gonna start leading us down a path away from the truth of God's word. Right? He said new. No. Listen, no, we never, ever, ever compromise on, on God's word. We need to stay anchored in the truth of God's word, right? But we also need to stay flexible as to how he may be willing or desiring to use us to accomplish his mission in this world, right? Do you think that churches today look like churches 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? It's constantly changing, right? The the mission doesn't change, but how we accomplish that mission, it changes. One of the things that I have always, always, always loved about this church, loved it, I've been a part of this church for a long, long time, And one of the things that I've always loved about this church family is is that through the years, this church has consistently displayed a willingness to just follow the Lord's lead and try new things. We've tried things that just didn't work, right? Just didn't work. We thought it would. We prayed about it. We said, hey, let's try this. It didn't work. But other things, we said people would come up with an idea and they say, what if we tried this? We really want to meet our community. Maybe that's how something like shoulder to shoulder was born. Right? It's just an idea. What if we, as a church, went out into our community and we tried this thing and we did we did projects and then we and then at lunchtime, working in people's homes, we invite them to sit down and have lunch with us and we talk about why we're doing what we're doing. We talk about the Lord and have devotions together. And, and we and we rub shoulders with people who might not ever come into this door. Let's take the church out to them. Amen. That's what we decided to do, right? That's one of those things that worked. I mean, what is this, year six, seven? I don't even know, but, but, but shoulder to shoulder is one of those things that worked. For now, we might decide, well, it's just not working anymore. We'll have to try a different way to reach our community, right? We've got food pantries. We've got clothing closets. There's, there's lots of different ways that we might try to reach our community, but I appreciate the fact that you're willing to say, let's try it. Let's see how it goes. That we don't get stuck in our ways and say, this is how we've always done it. We don't want to become like that. We always want to be sensitive. We want to be sensitive to the Lord and, and where, where he's moving and how he's moving in our midst. Well, next week, as I said, we're gonna, wow, we're gonna see two more challenges from the Pharisees. You know, I gotta say, Jesus is pretty patient. I mean, he's, he, he does let him have it at times uh, in, 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 in the scriptures, but man, these guys are relentless, right? They're relentless. But until then, Let me just encourage you to stay close to Jesus, right? Stay close to Jesus. I encourage you to to study his word, dig into the word, commit time to pray, even commit time to fast if the Lord is leading you to do so. Don't come in here next week. (laughs) Horrible week. Oh, it was the hardest week ever. I've been fasting all week but it's for the Lord, <laughs> right? We're not gonna do that. But if the Lord is leading you, consider consider fasting for the right reasons. Then just follow his lead. Listen to the spirit and how he's leading you and continue wherever the Lord has you this week, wherever he has you, continue to shine bright, right? Shine bright. Let your light shine before others in such a way that they see your good deeds and they glorify your father in heaven. That's what we're gonna do between now and next Sunday, Right? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. I I cannot thank you enough for the joy and the freedom that you have put into my life through your son, Jesus Christ. You forgave me of my sins, brought me into this eternal relationship with you where, where I can come to you at any time talk with you and know that you are listening and you care for me and you love me. And, 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 and every person in this room who knows you knows that same truth. God, thank you. You've put us into a family where we get to walk through life together, encourage one another, challenge one another, grow together, carry burdens together. And you've given us, incredible, given us this incredible opportunity to be a light to the world around us. God, I just pray. I pray that, 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 that the people of Fayette Baptist Church, when we leave this place, I pray that what the community sees is, is, is what, what the people in the first century saw about you and your disciples. Joy, freedom, and, and leading people to experience forgiveness of sins in life that really matters. I pray that they don't see what the people saw in the Pharisees, gloomy, sorrowful people, married to their forms. God, we don't want to be like that. We love you. We praise you. We ask you to continue leading and guiding each and every member of this body for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.